I begin with the account of one Lenore Campbell. He was a doctor. He had performed a surgery on a lady that required some anesthesia. And as she was coming out of the anesthesia, the sounds of church bells could be heard in the background. The woman muttered as she tried to open her eyes, I must be in heaven. Then she fully opened her eyes and blinked a few times and said, no, this can't be heaven. There's Dr. Campbell. Talk about disappointment, obviously, for both of them. For both this lady and Dr. Campbell, there was disappointment, a sense of not being satisfied. I think we have a screen up there for you. A sense of not being satisfied with the result of some kind of situation. Sometimes we experience disappointment because, quite frankly, uh, and, and I would really want to press this one home. I could do a whole sermon on this. You know one of the number one reasons why you suffer disappointment? Because you have unrealistic expectations. Your expectations are wrong, and so you get disappointed. But we can get disappointed because of, of all sorts of, of issues. We, uh, the truth be told, this world is filled with disappointment. Disappointment is simply one of the unfortunate byproducts of living in this fallen, sinful world where whether one is a believer or not, everyone experiences pain. Everyone goes through suffering. Everyone has disappointment in this life. It is from failed relationships. It can be to unfulfilled dreams. It can be because you've been let down and disillusioned by others. Life can be filled with sorrows and disappointment. And the truth is, our Lord Jesus Christ told us it would be this way. He said, in this world, you will have trials or tribulations, and included in all of that would be disappointment. No one is immune. But sometimes it is good to be disappointed. How on earth does that work? Why would it be good that we be disappointed? Beloved, for in our disappointment, we sometimes come to realize that we've placed our hopes in the wrong persons or in the wrong things. Disappointment, then, ought to drive us to God. Whenever you are disappointed, you ought to take a step back and say, what did I miss that I put my hope in this, that I was seeking satisfaction in this rather than God? It is God to whom we are to look to, and when we rightly look to and trust him, I can make this promise as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you look fully on to God, when you look fully to Christ, you will never be disappointed. In our text this morning, we find Peter continuing his litany describing false teachers, and we've already considered a rather lengthy list in we're listing those up for you now. We've seen their contrast in how they stand in opposition to the true prophets of God. Their constancy, they're always with us. Their company, that false teachers like to hang out in the church. We've seen their code that they introduce heresy. There's a number of times in which Peter introduces their, their calamity, that they're doomed to swift destruction in God's own timing. We've seen how they contaminate everything they touch, their conspiracy that they use false words to exploit 
others for their own gain. And because of this, we've seen their condemnation, that God does bring judgment upon them. We've seen their condition that if God doesn't spare angels and didn't spare Old Testament cities because of such, uh, uh, such false teaching, why would he spare them? We've seen their conceit in verses 10 through 13, their conduct that they like to flaunt their sin. Last week we considered their covetousness that ultimately false teachers do what they do to satisfy themselves. And what's tricky about it is that they realize that they might have to try to please someone else in order to get themselves pleased, but they'll do whatever it takes for their satisfaction to be fulfilled. And now this morning we'll consider the cunning of false teachers. They, they're so cunning and conniving that they not only end up disappointing others, but they will disappoint themselves as we'll come to see. And that brings us to our text in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. And I will invite you to stand as we read verses 17 through 19 in this description now of false teachers from Peter. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Hear Peter's description in the word of the Lord. These are springs without water, and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. From these three verses, I offer you three truths that, flow, that uh, demonstrate for us the, the cunning and the conniving of false teachers. We'll see their disingenuous nature in verse 17. We'll see again now their doom, which we've seen repeatedly from Peter at the end of verse 17. And then we will consider their deceptive work. So that's very briefly our outline. It is because of their use of cunning and conniving that they end up being nothing but a disappointment to everyone. They disappoint those who follow them. They disappoint themselves. And ultimately, they are a disappointment to God. Let us consider these characteristics one by one, beginning with their disingenuous nature. Notice how Peter describes them, beginning in verse 17. He says, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Now, these particular words are quite important uh, as Peter is initially uh, re, uh, uh, addressing a, um, an audience that uh, would recognize the significance of these particular metaphors. He has just spoken to them about false teachers, comparing false teachers to Balaam. And he says these, that is, these false teachers, and now he's going to elaborate on that by the use of these two metaphors, the first being springs without water, and the second being mist driven by a storm. Now, these would be of special interest if you live in arid country. You would get the picture quite clearly, and that would also 
revealed the disillusionment that will come when you finally recognize that a false teacher has been giving you nothing, that they've been empty with what they have offered you. By calling them springs without water, Peter is charging false teachers with being those who stir up great expectations. They can be charismatic. They can have all the eloquence. They can have great speeches and great sermons and deliver them with with wonder. But they never deliver on the goods of God's word because they're not proclaiming the truth of God's word. By setting themselves up as teachers, the things uh, of things spiritual or religious, they are professing. They say, I'm the teacher. I'm a spring that you can come to. I'm the fountainhead from where you can drink and you can have a source of living water. If you are thirsty, the false teachers are saying, come to me and listen to my teaching. But like a weary traveler who comes to a place where he, he supposes to find water. He's filled with disappointment when he finds the place waterless. There's a tendency among churchgoers to mistake charisma for content, for symbolism over substance. Let us be wary, beloved, of being enamored by the externals rather than to be excited by the eternal. If what you're receiving from a pulpit, if what you're listening to on on a podcast does not excite in you something eternal, what are you doing? What is it good for? Such false or empty teachers are those who, according to 2 Peter 2, verse 1, have introduced destructive heresies, teachings that don't exalt the truth, don't amplify the truth. Heresy is that which divides the truth. It separates the truth. It brings division to the truth and therefore division in the church. They stand in stark contrast to our master and Lord Jesus Christ who said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 verses 13 through 14, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of this well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. We should be saying today, Lord, give me of that water. Let me possess that living water. False teachers will ultimately be shallow then in their teaching, leaving a thirst for the soul. Yet Jesus always satisfies, as the hymn writer has penned, well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Let us be wary of teachers who fail to point us to Jesus Christ to the Christ of Scripture, who by their teachings actually deny, as Peter has already told us, the master who bought them. There is something extraordinary about faithful Scripture teaching. We sometimes refer to it in our circles as reformed teaching, but all truly reformed teaching is what? 
the teaching of Scripture. As Acts chapter 20, verse 27 says, as Paul says, I have labored simply to unfold to you the whole counsel of God. When people begin to question what I believe by straw man arguments, the best place to go is not to address their straw man arguments. It's to say, let's go to Scripture and see what does Scripture say. Don't start with the argument. Let's just read the verse and let's come to the conclusion as we read God's word. I've been amazed over the years by the testimonies of those who have attended uh, attended various churches over the years who come here and say something to the effect of this. Here we hear the Bible taught. I knew they say something was missing before, but I could not put my finger on it. Here we learn the Bible. Beloved, if we just let scripture speak, here's the promise. It will satisfy it is when we get away from what Scripture says that we find dissatisfaction and disillusionment. And that's why false teachers cannot satisfy, because they move you away from the only thing that can satisfy. And my job as the preacher is simply to explain the meaning of the text, and the Holy Spirit then does his work in your heart and soul. And so we proclaim once again with the hymn writer, Hallelujah, he has found me, the one my soul so long had craved. I didn't know it, but he found me. Jesus satisfies all my longings through his blood. I now am saved. This is something false teachers cannot offer, being springs without water, springs without satisfaction. But I find it interesting that Peter uses this analogy or this metaphor, and he's not content with just one. It's like, I don't know if you're going to get the full picture if I only say there are springs without water. And so he uses a second metaphor, and he goes on to call false teachers what? Mist driven by a storm. And what Peter is addressing is the instability of false teachers, that their teachings Rather than bringing in the rain, they're at best merely mist. I'm amazed that uh, sometimes you can get yourself uh, here in Arkansas, and I know other places in the country too, but being from Southern California, I didn't see this much. But you can get up on a hill and you can see the clouds coming and you can see that there's rain supposed to be coming. You can see it, it trying to fall and it never makes the ground like it's raining but it's not raining and that's the the picture Peter is painting here they're promising something that it's only a tease here comes the rain but it's just a mist that's gone and we were told that they're driven by the storm because the mist just goes wherever the storm has it go, right? It doesn't have any control over anything. By whatever forces they encounter, that's where the mists go. I remember a catchy country song. I know I'm not supposed to quote from, you know, secular music, but there was a very catchy country song when I was an intern in, in Grand Junction, Colorado in the 90s, so I'm dating myself with that. But the line said this, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Sure, that's been around before that country song. But you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Since false teachers do not stand upon the solid rock who is Christ and his word, their teachings 
will have you ebb and flow. You'll fall every time. As a result, those who listen to their teachings will be tossed to and fro, something that the Apostle Paul spoke of to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.14 when he says, uh, as a result, that is, as a result of being under the clear and faithful teachings of pastors and teachers, that's up in verse 11, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Notice what he says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful, that is, cunning, conniving, scheming. That's the false teachers. They're not looking for your best interest. Another picture painted by mist driven by the storm is that such misty clouds do something else. They obscure what? What do the clouds obscure? The light of the sun. The idea is that false teachers then are intentionally veiling the light of what? Of God's word, of God's truth, so that those who listen to them will never truly know it. That is why we need to be Berean-like. That is why it is not enough for you to take my word for what God's word says. You take what I say and you do the study. You dig in and see if these things are not so. False teachers are disingenuous in that they promise their refreshing rains, but they never deliver, and they are blown here and there. And when you're just about to think, here comes the refreshing rain, you receive not a drop. You receive nothing but disappointment and disillusionment. And those who are in true need of living water, who is Christ in his word, they never get introduced to him. Who should you be talking about to your family and friends? Whom should we be discussing continually so that those who are in our hearing know from where our hope is found? We must be speaking of Christ. We must be pointing to Christ. We must have our focus in our ministries on Christ. Christ central, sola Christos. This brings us to our second consideration. Peter kind of pauses, as it were, and gives us the result of false teachers and their disingenuous nature. If you're going to be a false teacher, and I don't think there's anybody in this room aspiring to be a false teacher, but if you are, then Peter pauses here. He reminds his readers, this is what they're going to get. This is what they have to look forward to. And the words are dark. They're doom. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. Now let me remind you that Peter has painstakingly reminded his readers throughout this chapter over and over of the doom and destruction that is the lot for every false teacher and ultimately the lot for all who would follow them. Lest you think it might be okay to fall in with the false teachers and to seek with them your best life now, Peter stresses the doom that awaits their followers. Consider very quickly, back in chapter 2, verse 1, that by their actions they are doing what? They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You want to be on the winning team? Well, guess what? They may tell you they're the winning team, but God's word says they're about to be destroyed. Look at verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They might think they're getting away with something. We may even envy them at times because, wow, they're preaching a message. They're saying something, and the people are going to them, and they're being so blessed in this present time. 
But if it's devoid of Christ and the gospel and the truth, then it's destruction that is coming upon them. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And then verses 12 and 13, but these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct, here's their doom to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of their own wrong doing. So there's four or five times, and now again, here comes Peter, verse 17. And he says that these who are empty vessels, empty springs, these who promise all sorts of of refreshment but never deliver, they are for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Beloved, we must never forget the dark and dismal end that is promised false teachers and their followers. The for whom speaks of the false teachers. This is for them, Peter says. It is black darkness, and it reminds us of the pits of darkness spoken of already back in verse 4 for those angels. This pictures the impending fate that is about to fall upon false teachers. There is almost a redundancy here, is there not? It is not sufficient for Peter to simply say that they're about to be plunged into darkness. You would think that would be sufficient. But Peter, by inspiration of the Spirit, says it is black darkness. Why? Why would you say black darkness, Peter? He is speaking of a darkness that is so dark, the darkness is unimaginable. You can't comprehend how dark this darkness is. If I might tell a story upon my friend Zach, he's like, me? While Laura and I were on our cruise, Zach graciously and heroically volunteered to take care of my three raccoons for those 10 days. That's not really the story. But because of the nature of feeding them twice a day, of course, in the morning and in the evening, he was offered our guest bedroom in our home so that he could stay uh, if he wanted to overnight and get up in the morning. And so uh, uh, at least on a couple of occasions, I understood he took advantage of that. What you don't know about that room, if you've never been down there, is our guest room is a cave. There are no windows in this particular room. It is in the back corner of our walkout uh, basement. It's got, it's very nice, it's very cool. It's got super thick carpeting. Why do I say that? Because it's already dark down there in the basement, but when you shut that door, that carpet seals off any potential light that might come into the room. When you are in that room, you are in, Zach was in, black darkness. You say, well, You know, that might seem like it was a pretty cool thing to do. But the problem is, is it messes up your body because you don't know that it's light outside. And from what I understood, there was at least one morning that uh, Zach came down a little bit late because he's like, I had no idea. It was dark in that room. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is so dark that it messes with every aspect of you. Here in our text, Peter tells us of a darkness so dark, a darkness that's so overwhelmingly dismal that it ought to be considered a horror. Just to say black darkness ought to bring a chill to the soul. And this is the doom 
that Peter says belongs to those who proclaim false teaching. You're in a dark room, and some of you can do this, and there might be a little bit of light, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're what? What do you do? You stumble around in the darkness. And you can even see some shadows and everything, and they kind of mess with you too. We're talking nothing. There is nothing. Notice that Peter says that this state of being in black darkness, look at the verb. It has been reserved for them. They have a reservation. Everybody loves reservations, right? We were on our cruise. We had a reservation. We had our own uh, 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 place to sleep, our own stateroom. I'm glad. Thank you for having a reserved room that we didn't have to fight for a bed or something. We had reservations for our, our excursions. Those were wonderful. How about a reservation for the black darkness? No, thank you. It's written in the perfect tense, meaning that it is something that these false teachers have presently, and it will be theirs into the future forever and ever and ever. They have a fixed reservation. The verb reserved speaks of keeping watch over. Negatively, as it's used, it means to be guarded. It means to be in, as in a prison so that you cannot escape the eyes of God. I always find it interesting people think that hell is the absence of God. No, God is everywhere. Hell is not the absence of God. It's the eternal experience of the wrath of God. The eyes of God are as much there as they are anywhere else. And so now you have this place where you can't see. You are being watched by God, guarded in a place of darkness. Your doom is sure. Now, this is heavy. But I find it interesting that Peter used this word reserved before. And I, I made note of this. Because he's used this verb before, and he used it not in a negative connotation, but a positive one. And so, if you're getting kind of doom and gloom, let's give you a little bit of light and joy here for just a moment, okay? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, just a couple of pages over. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to see that Peter uses this, that for those who trust in Christ, for those who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, those who have been sanctified by the Spirit of God, those who obey Jesus Christ, having been sprinkled with his blood, that for these, these are those who are, in verse 3, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then what do they get in verse 4? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, that is eternal, and undefiled, perfectly pure, and will not fade away, always enduring. And now note what Peter says. He uses the same verb, reserved, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who it's reserved, it's being kept. You're being watched over. You're being guarded so as not to escape from this position. And so Peter started with these readers by saying, there is something wondrously reserved for you. Do you have your reservations? Are you 
sure? Are you sure of his calling and choosing of you? Do you know your reservation is with Christ, that you have this enduring, this undefiled and eternal inheritance? It's reserved in heaven for you. What a contrast that Peter starts with the believers. This is your reservation. And he says, now, if you get off course, if you're if you're not really following Christ, if you're following a different teaching altogether or worse yet, you're one of those who are teaching these things, then what's reserved for you? Black darkness. Black darkness. That's what awaits those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. What a disappointment. What a disappointment to follow false teachers only to face doom. All the more reason to consider what Peter will address in chapter 3, verse 14, where he will say, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him, Christ, in peace, spotless, and blameless. This is to put into practice that diligence, that maximum effort in your faith to know that you are in right standing with God. Do you know today that you are in right standing with God because of your faith in Christ? Not just that I say I believe, but by your life you've seen the changes that come with being transformed by Christ. As Peter exhorted back in chapter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make sure you have this reservation for the inheritance that's based on the resurrection of Christ, not the black darkness. For as long as you practice these things, what things? the fruits of sanctification, the evidence of being filled with the Spirit, then Peter says, then you will never stumble. Why do you stumble? Because you're in the dark. Whatever darkness you are in today, sinner, if you have not followed Christ, you are in the dark and you are stumbling right now. If you remain there, you will go to an even darker place and stumble for all eternity. But... If you practice these things, if you follow Christ, you will never be disappointed by following him as you're filled with his spirit. Well, this brings us to our final consideration, the deceptive work. After pausing to give this doom, and we've kind of given the contrast with the, with the doom with those who have followed Christ, they have that reservation in heaven. We see in verses 18 and 19, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now, Peter begins these verses with that little conjunction, that word for, and he's giving us justification. He's telling us the reason why false teachers deserve this reservation of black darkness. If I were to summarize the reason for their doom, it would be because of the pernicious and deceptive work in which they engage in. Remember, according to verse 10, false teachers are not, are, are not those who are seeking to satisfy God's glory. They're not there to be servants of God. They're there not to seek the best for their followers. Rather, they are those who, according to verse 10, indulge the flesh 
in its corrupt desires. Or as the Amplified Version puts it, those who walk after the flesh and indulge in the lust of polluting passion and scorn. How do they do this? Well, we have part of the answer here in verse 18. How do they do this? Speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Is this not in keeping with deceptive, disingenuous uh, their nature? In the Greek, it literally reads arrogant words of vanity speaking. It starts with the arrogant words. Arrogant words of vanity speaking. Loud boasts of folly, uh, of uttering. A great swelling of words proclaiming. It's just puffed up language. The word arrogant speaks of those things that are swollen beyond normal size. Anybody ever twist an ankle? You can say my ankle is arrogant next time. Swollen up beyond normal size. They are exaggerations, gross over-exaggerations. These are misinterpretations of the truth, sometimes with just enough truth to entice the ones who are not paying attention. The words of vanity here do not speak of, of that which is necessarily empty, although they are empty, but rather words of vanity describes the results of their teaching. They're speaking arrogant words, but they're never saving anybody. There's an emptiness. There's a dissatisfaction. They don't produce anything constructive by way of spirituality. It is a futile effort. Notice that Peter tells us that the words of these false teachers are arrogant, swelled, puffed up. That stands in contrast, does it not, to the words of Christ, which are according to the testimony of Peter himself, not puffed up, swelled up words, but the words of life. Recall the incident in John 6 where Jesus had just given a very hard teaching. And what was that hard teaching? He basically taught them, unless the Father draws you, you're not coming. He says in verse 65, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted, bestowed upon him from the Father. That's a tough teaching. And we still have people that struggle stress out with that but we start with scripture and that's what it says but we find like even today people stress with that notice what happened in verse 66 as a result of that teaching as a result of this many of his disciples these followers general followers withdrew and were not walking with him anymore they were never true believers They saw the words of Christ and they thought, oh, this is going to be great, but they weren't in it to the glory of God. They weren't seeking satisfaction uh, from from God. They wanted just satisfaction for themselves. They They followed Christ no more. And it was many, it says, many of his disciples. So verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And here's one of the grandest testimonies. And we have Peter's, of course, confession of Christ in Matthew 16, but here we have this statement in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Is that the way that you look at it when you get up? I, I know that Christ has the words of life. The preacher should be preaching the words of Christ who has the words of life. 
The false teachers speak the, would speak puffed up words, futile words, lofty words, but self-serving words. They couch their words in the lofty language, deceptively disguising it, but in the end, what is it? It's disappointing. Only Jesus, and I dare say all who faithfully proclaim his teachings, speak the words of life. Hunger after that. Peter informs us that their deception is powerful enough to entice, that is to seduce or trick others into thinking it is actually more than it really is. The false teachers manipulate the Bible and the hearts of the people into thinking that it says something that it does not say. Literally, they use words to trick people to believe this. You ready? That satisfying the fleshly desires can be biblical. It's kind of the proverbial, you can have your cake and eat it too. But if all you're ever doing is eating cake, you're in trouble. Right? And so here he's saying, these people will try to seduce you to think that you can live according to the flesh. And they cast their bait by saying things like, do you want to get rich? You can be in Christ. Do you want to be healthy? You ought to be in Christ. Do you want to live a life of ease? You can in Christ. Do you want to enjoy the things of this world and still be right with God? Do you want to not feel guilt or shame by the way that you're living? Then they say, follow my teaching, and I will show you how you can live in the flesh one way, and as long as you think your spirit is right with God, well, then you're good with God. Do these things that I tell you, they say, let me tickle your ears with what you want to hear so that you don't have to feel bad about the way you're living your life. I'll tell you how to live by your senses, by sensuality, those things that will please you. It seems that Peter's concern then appears to be for those who are young in the faith, those who have just acknowledged their reception of the gospel. They, they've heard about Christ. They, they want to receive the gospel message of salvation. Or perhaps those, uh, those who are being moved by the preaching of the gospel for the first time, they're just beginning to understand, hey, if I'm going to follow Christ, I need to separate myself from this world. And then some preacher comes along and says, you know what? You don't have to separate yourself from the world. You can live like the world if you desire. Let me show you how you can do this. That's the message. These are those who are presently, uh, 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 um, these are those who are just beginning to separate themselves. It, Peter uses this phrase, from the ones who live in error. So they're starting to, to move away. These are those who are presently escaping, he says, from fleeing from the error of the false teachers, but they're struggling with it. Beloved, as it was true in Peter's day, so it is today. False teachers are not passive, they're active. They're active in corrupting the moral conduct of new converts who are just beginning their escape from the corruptions of idolatry and have not yet been grounded in their new life in Christ. I just heard of a, there's a, uh, a rainbow creed that's being proclaimed in churches today that's espousing all of the homosexual agenda, all of the transgender agenda, and it's being done in the church. 
There's nothing new under the sun. The issue that Peter seems to be addressing is that these false teachers had preached to them that their holiness and purity is of no consequence. It's of no consequence. We read in verse 19 that the false teachers were, notice what it says, they're promising freedom. That is, in the context of their teaching, they're giving them license to do, you can do whatever you want. You can confess Jesus as Savior, but you need not submit to him for who he is as Lord. We actually have a name for that. We call it antinomianism, that there's no law for the believer. Live as you would desire. So long as you have received Christ as Savior, you're good. That's a lie that will damn you to hell. Because those whom Christ saves, he changes. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A brand new creature. The old is gone. There is no teaching that says in the scripture you can live as you want, that you can be a carnal Christian and yet possess eternal life. This is the teaching that seeks to divide Jesus Christ by saying you can receive him as Savior escaping the consequences of your sin and giver of eternal life while never being changed, never submitting to him as Lord. May it never be. False teachers set themselves up as preachers of true liberty. That's what Peter's saying, assuring those who follow them that you can live a life without restraints. The proverbial, again, you can have your cake and eat it too, is the teaching. The kind of freedom false teachers offer, though, is a freedom from what? What is the freedom that they're offering you? The freedom is, it's a freedom from the obligation to serve Christ as you should. You can do whatever you want, but you don't have to follow Christ. It's the exact inverse of what it ought to be. I should desire to serve Christ and not these other things. I'm free not to sin. And yet the teaching is, you're free to sin and not obligated to Christ, why would you ever call him master and Lord if that is your thinking? The kind of false teachers, the kind of freedom false teachers offers is freedom from the obligation to serve Christ, a freedom from growing in him in the way that Peter had set out for them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. As we read in verse 5 of chapter 1, we've already read this, we've studied it before, but here's what Peter expected as the change. Here's what the Holy Spirit expects from you and I if we've truly received the whole Christ. Now, for this very reason also, applying maximum effort, all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, the very excellence of Christ and his character. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you what? Neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to know if you really know Christ? It's not just about saying, I can quote the 66 books of the Bible. It's are you living by the precepts that are found in those 66 books? 
I would have you notice that there's nothing in this teaching of Peter that gives a hint or a suggestion of a giving in or of a gratifying of the flesh, of an indulging in the fleshes and of the flesh. In fact, in chapter in First uh, Peter chapter four, he says the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the of the Gentiles. You've had enough of that. You've seen the slavery. You're done with that. The false teachers were advocating this no law, this antinomianism, which insisted that Christians had been freed from the law and all of its unnecessary restrictions, leaving them to follow the promptings and desires of their own flesh. In essence, false teachers, false teachers misinterpret the spiritual freedom of Christ that Christ bestows upon his own as a license to sin. Such false teachers utterly fail to understand the true nature of what freedom in Christ is, that the one who is truly free is the one who desires to do what Christ has called him to do. If you do not desire to do what Christ has called you to do, then you are not free. You are enslaved by sin. You have been called to be holy, as we're reminded in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God. If you want to leave here knowing what does God have for you, what is the most important thing for you to remember, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, your purity, your clean way of living. It means that everyone in this room has areas of our lives that need to be uh, dropped off. We're still works in progress. This is your sanctification. Of course, he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. We're reminded that sanctification is that process by which our own moral behavior becomes increasingly like the moral excellence of Christ. Can I just ask you, are you more like Christ today than you were a year ago? Can, can you actually, do you have a metrics for that? Do you, do you have a way of measuring that? Or are you just kind of hoping that it's so? Sanctification not only involves abstinence from sexual immorality, which Paul addresses here. That was a key issue for Paul and the Thessalonians. But I submit to you that it also uh, contains any conduct that falls short of Christ-likeness. Do you have a problem with self-control? Did Jesus have a problem with self-control? Then you have something to work on. Was Jesus prone to outbursts of anger? not of unrighteous anger, do you? You see, there's all of these areas that we need to recognize. False teachers are blind to the reality that proper Christian living comes only when God's commands are seen as guardrails that give the believer true freedom, freedom to obey God rather than to disobey and continue in sin. One of the struggles so many in the have in the church today is the perversion of the gospel of free the free grace of God making it something that it was never intended to be the apostle Paul addressed the turning of God's grace into a license of sin as many of you are familiar with in Romans chapter 6 verse 2 he asserts in the strongest language he he strikes out against the notion that it's ever okay to sin so that God's grace may somehow abound and how does he say it he says may it never be in just flat-out terms. 
can I live a little bit the way I want? May it never be if you are in Christ. Well, isn't God's grace sufficient? It is, but may it never be a license for you to sin. In 1 Peter 2.16, Peter had already exhorted these believers that uh, we're reading about by saying, and I'm reading from the Amplified Bible, he says, live as free people, yet without employing your freedom as a pretext for wickedness, but live at all times, how? As servants of God. Every moment. Husbands, you live every moment as a servant of, the God, of God Most High. And you are serving God by serving your wife and serving your family. Wives, you are servants of God. And you need to recognize that everything through the day is an opportunity for you not to sin, but to live as free people, to live according to the precepts of God's word. Children, you are in Christ. You've been given the same promise. You have freedom to serve your parents, to love and obey them. Whilst the teachers who introduced destructive heresies and heresies that were prone to make appeals to the flesh in order to undermine the demand of obedience and moral obligations to the gospel, while all that's going on, we're to say no. It's interesting that one of the first heresies to attack biblical Christianity, uh, I won't get too technical, was that of Gnosticism. Some of you understand what Gnosticism is. Some of you are like, I have no idea. Well, what was Gnosticism? Gnosticism ultimately was a form of, of libertinism, of being able to live how you want in the flesh. It, it was the idea that it did not matter how you lived in your flesh, so do whatever you want, please it, as long as you have some spiritual information and insight, you can be saved. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there are countless numbers of people in the church who engage in this very effort to dress up sin, to make it not be what it really is. And, and we, you know, we won't call sin what it is anymore. Some of the prayers that get offered up er, almost every Sunday morning for the services is that there be a boldness in the proclaiming, a proclamation of the gospel. Well, we ought to pray for boldness in our own proclamation of the gospel. We can't be silent when it comes to the truth. And the reason why the truth is so maligned out there in the world has largely to do with two things. One is so many who are Christians don't really know the truth. And number two, that those of us who know the truth are too scared to speak it. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon us as he did in Acts chapter 4, that we would pray together as a congregation and that boldness would come upon us. And when the boldness of the Spirit comes upon us, what happens? You read in the book of Acts, it's not the speaking of tongues, it's the proclamation of the word of God. Let us be a people who proclaim the word of God. Here's where we find Peter exposing them the disappointment that comes from following false teachers. The personal lives of these false teachers, with all of their grand promises of liberty, are actually revealing the falseness of their teaching. When somebody tells you, you can live in a way contrary to what you think God's word says, and you can be okay, they're promising freedom. In reality, they are what? 
they are actually bound in their own sin. They claim to be promising freedom when in reality they are, they're not holy. They're not ardent follow and faithful followers of Christ and his word. No, they are, Peter says, actually slaves of corruption. Peter's showing us their contradiction that they exist, the contradiction that exists between, we use this language, between their talk and their walk. Their arrogant claims to be experts concerning a life of true freedom is contradicted by their own continuing enslavement to corruption. The Greek in verse 19 literally reads, they themselves slaves being of corruption. The present, their present being is in the settled state or in, in a condition of corruption. There's nothing good within them. They are both in moral decay, in the sin that they are living in, and they are in a state of ruin for their soul. Peter then seeks to end the thought with an application. I love this application. It's kind of, kind of different in this, whole, in this whole letter. He says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And what Peter's picturing here is the ancient practice of enslaving an enemy defeated in battle and made a prisoner enslaved. To be overcome speaks of those who remain in the condition of corruption, those who live however they want to live to the ruin of their soul. And the irony is that those who seek to be promising freedom are actually themselves, Peter says, slaves to sin. And what are they, what are they encouraging you to do? To live some form of a sinful life. What Peter proclaims here, I believe you learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, amen and amen. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is right with God. Is that what he said? Everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. Let me ask you, are you enslaved to sin? How do you know? The deceitfulness of sin. How do you know if you're enslaved to sin? Do you find yourself more desired to remain in your sin, whatever your sin of choice is, than to be delivered and serve the Savior? That's a really good question to ask yourself. I'd rather continue doing A than really being devoted to Christ. You might not say it that way unless I force you to think of it that way. While sin for a season may seem to be satisfying, it will end in disappointment, and it will lead to the eternal destruction of your soul. Is it any wonder why Paul, when addressing the matter of coming to the Lord's table with the believers at Corinth, took the time to tell them how to do it? In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 through 29. He wrote this, and I'll add some commentary. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What is that? If he's taking it merely as a ritualistic show. Or if you possess indifference. I don't care whether I'm taking this or not. I'm just doing it because, well, I'm here and I might as well. If I don't take it, what will the person next to me think? That's unworthy. Or if you're coming today and you're going to partake of this with a sinful, unrepentant heart, that's unworthy. 
If you're harboring bitterness or anger or resentment towards another, that's unworthy. If you're entertaining any other ungodly attitude, that's unworthy. And Paul says that the person who does this shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Coming to the Lord's table with an unworthy attitude then not only dishonors the act, but more importantly, it dishonors, Paul says, the very body, the very blood of Christ, because you're saying this is ultimately meaningless to me. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself. Beloved, it is necessary and proper to bring any and all known sin before the Lord before you partake of his table. Otherwise, your action is actually mocking who Christ is, and it's mocking what Christ has done. And so he says, but a man ought to examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And the word judgment here refers to chastisement. Believers are to properly discern the holiness of the Lord's table, to recognize that it is a reminder of what we have been freed from. We've been freed from the sin so as to live in it no longer. When we continue to sin and yet partake of the Lord's table, we treat the Lord's table as meaningless. We treat the Lord's life, suffering, and death as meaningless. We are emptying it. We are making it vain. Beloved, following false teachers will always lead to disappointment. According to the word of God, following Christ, while it does include struggle in this life, it says it will never lead to disappointment. Peter reminded these believers of this truth back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and with these words I will close as we prepare for the Lord's table. Notice what Peter says to these same readers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for this is contained in scripture. Do you love that? This is, this is God's word, man. This isn't, this isn't Peter's opinion. This isn't the preacher's thoughts. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I, the Lord, lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who is, of course, we come to learn the Lord Jesus Christ. And he who believes in him will not be, what? Disappointed. If you find yourself disappointed, that's how we began. Make sure that your expectations are in the right place. With regard to the teaching of God's word, false teachers will always disappoint. I'm going to tell you a secret. Even us non-false teachers will disappoint. 
I will disappoint you. But you take what's being said and you remember that at the end of the day, all of us recognize that there's only one who will not disappoint. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it comes to the proclaiming of God's word or the teaching of doctrine or to the way that we live or to the relationships that we have, look to Christ who does not disappoint. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these aspects of false teachers who do always disappoint. And Father, as we try to seek application of these things, we recognize that our desire as believers would certainly not to disappoint you or even to disappoint one another. Uh, we recognize that in our struggle against uh, sin and in this flesh, that will happen. But I pray that first and foremost, our own each personal desire will be to pursue Christ's likeness, to, to do those things that would not ultimately disappoint you at all, and Lord would bring refreshment and enjoy and not disappoint others father help us to also recognize that as we will fail and we will disappoint one another at times i pray that we would have the grace to love one another through those things that we would be a people who truly do forgive one another who truly recognize that we're all works in progress this is god's will presently our continuing sanctification and so as works in progress, I pray, Father God, we would be gracious to one another as we seek to live for Christ and grow in his likeness. Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, we thank you of the reminders that we are not to partake in an unworthy manner. We're not to undermine this, this time in any way. And Lord, what a tremendous burden on one hand, and, but what a great joy that the only way we can do this is if we come having fully trusted in Christ. That's not what we've done. It's not what we're bringing to the table. It's what Christ brought to the table for us, his body, his blood. And so, Father, as we partake of these elements together in a few moments, I pray that you would stir each heart to first and foremost examine him or herself, to confess any known sin, to make sure that they are in right standing with you, that they have trusted in you. And Father, if there be anyone this morning who has yet to bow the knee to Christ, anyone who's doubting their relationship to Christ, anyone who's uncertain that they would not partake of these elements, and Father God, I pray that you would stir their heart this morning to receive not bread and juice, but the true Savior who is Jesus Christ. Father God, I pray that you would help them get that resolved this morning. Speak to their hearts and have them speak to someone that they might get that worked out. And now, Father, we thank you for the time of worship as we come to the celebration of the Lord's table. May we do this with a sense of somberness and sobriety, but also that of great joy and celebration, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins so that we might be made righteous in your sight, made fit for heaven because of what Christ has done for us. May he be praised in this time, we ask, Father God. So we ask this in Jesus' name.